this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. So turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there should be a white paperback Bible in the pew in front of you. Go ahead and grab that out. Luke's kind of towards the back. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Westside. We're glad you're here on the third Sunday of Advent. Um, before we get started, I just want to make a quick announcement. Uh, 2020 is right around the corner which is crazy to say, right? That sounds like a science fiction movie or something. But if there's anything that we want you to do in this upcoming year, is two things. We want you to love Jesus. Uh, we want you to really love Jesus. And we believe a way that you can do that is by being in your word uh, in the Bible. And so what we've got is some Bible reading plans out front for you. Um, they're very accessible, a couple chapters a day. Um, it's great. We want you in the word. And then also there's a little pray, uh, like a prayer guide and then a, a Bible study method to, to kind of stick in your Bible, go along with your Bible reading plan. We even laminated this sucker. I'm just saying. It's not going to cost you anything. It's kind of a big deal, right? But um, I had this. I wanted it laminated because the one that was in my Bible gets all beat up and everything like that. So anyway, we're providing you with first-class laminated material around here, okay? So it's out there in the lobby. We would love for you to pick that up. But hey, we're in the third Sunday of Advent, and we're slowly uh, sort of building in anticipation. There is more light um, that is happening around the Advent wreath. And so we're building in anticipation for the coming um, of the Savior. And so we've been uh, sort of anchored in a word that has helped guide us through this Advent season, and it's the word behold. And uh, really what we looked at is we've realized that you could almost book in the entire Bible with the word behold. That anytime God wants to communicate something to us, either what he has done or what he's going to do, the first thing that he says is behold, which means to get ready. Look at what I'm getting ready to do. And what we said is so different about that is that a lot of times we think that the first word that God wants to say to us is behave, not behold. 
And when we understand that difference, it drastically changes our view of God. And so we're seeing this word behold all through sort of these Christmas stories. And today in our passage that was read to you, the word behold is used three times in these short amount of verses. Because it's some pretty incredible things that are taking place. But maybe as a way of illustration, this will help set us up. It was October 15th, 2018, and Kensington Palace, the royal residence for the royal family, announced via social media. Isn't that crazy? Like the royal family announces on Instagram, and they say, The Royal Highness, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, are very pleased to announce that the Duchess is expecting a baby in the spring of 2019. The Royal Highnesses have appreciated all of the support that they have received from people around the world since their wedding in May and are delighted to be able to share this happy news with the public. And of course, this is a very famous Prince Harry and Meghan. They have been in the news. This is literally, in 2019, the definition of royalty, right? From the royal family, the queen, one of the longest ruling monarchs of our day. And we're getting to live in that. It's incredible to see. But it's really cool when you look at that sort of announcement. It's a royal announcement, <laughs> if you will, from a royal family, from a royal palace. Everything about it screams royalty. And today in our passage is another announcement. It's actually called the Annunciation, the announcement from the angel about what's going to take place to Mary. There's no royal palace. There's no royal family. It's literally going to be announced in a place that we have no significance of, and then we know later on in the story that the birth is going to take place in a stinky manger. Like, we try to clean up the manger, right? We try to make it look all nice. Like, let's just be honest. There was poop around, okay? Can we just say that in church? Can we just admit that, right? It was not glamorous. And all of that entire message means something that God has communicated through all of this, a very important message. And the thrust of these verses today can be found in verse 37. It's beautiful. Behold, for there is nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing will be impossible with God. That's incredible. And so the big idea today for us to behold and to understand is just that. Literally the words, the words from that verse. Behold, nothing is impossible with God. And if we're honest, if we're honest, you hear that and you say, oh, that sounds so great. I, I just don't believe it. Oh, oh, no, it's great. I mean, I know God's done some stuff for some people, and I know, like, we're in church, so we're supposed to be, like, super pumped, like, nothing's impossible with God, yeah, woo, until Monday. But listen, today I come bearing very good news, because I don't know if, if you've ever experienced this, but I've seen someone waste their life 40-plus years on alcohol, lose everything that they ever loved and wanted, and that addiction stole everything from them. And I've seen an individual like that surrender their life to Jesus Christ and beat an addiction like that. Because listen, I got good news today. Behold, nothing is impossible with God. I've seen people get reports from a doctor that said there's nothing else that we can do 
And those people are worshiping with us today in this room because behold, nothing is impossible with God. I've seen people separated, headed for divorce, not wanting anything to do with each other, and finding the grace and mercy and forgiveness that only Jesus Christ could offer, that they could in turn offer to each other, reconcile their marriage, because behold, nothing is impossible with God. That is good news for us today. And, and we know that, and we say that that's good and that's right, but there's so much that's happening in this passage. You see, we love, like verse 37, slap that on a coffee mug, get me a sweatshirt, bumper sticker, I am all about it, right? We love that. That'll get a lot of likes on your Facebook status. This is great, woo-hoo. But the way that this news comes and what's happening and who the news is being announced to means everything for us in this passage, so remember, we're beholding. It's, we learned that, that what we behold, we become. So we're beholding that nothing is impossible with God, but there's some things that we need to know about this backdrop. The first thing is this. We see the impossible in the insignificant. The impossible in the insignificant. And, and we just sort of read like right over it. That's why, it's so, that's why we want you in your Bible. We want you meditating on God's Word. It takes time. Like, listen, Bible reading is not like the microwave, right? You're not going to just punch three minutes and just kind of make it happen, right? You need to crockpot that joint, okay? You need to let that sit all afternoon get something good out of it. Because look in verse 26. In the sixth month... The angel Gabriel. So, like we've learned about Gabriel. Gabriel's a big deal. Anytime this dude announces anything, it's like global news. Incredible. Gabriel was sent from God, angels being messengers and ministers of God, to a city of Galilee, you ready for it, named Nazareth. Like if we were to write this story, we would say, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee at Kensington Palace, where royalty resides, right? But in order to understand what this is, let me have a little fun with this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Puxico. <laughs> to a city of Galilee named Naylor. Fisk, Don, I mean, what, I mean, whatever you want to put in there, right? Like this town, we don't know a lot about this town. This town never really hit the scene, wasn't that big of a deal. Nobody did their Christmas shopping in Nazareth, okay? What we know about this town is the population was probably around less than 500 people, right? Like maybe a single stoplight or something like that, you know? Largely illiterate, a large population being within agriculture and working manual labor, blue-collar town, all of those things. And we see this town mentioned again sort of as a slur in John's gospel. It, it takes place like this. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found the one in whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? I mean, it, it's like I grew up a large part of my life down in southeast Missouri in Kennett. And so anytime that I talk to my nanny or find out anything about Kennett, it is nothing good. It's like, hey, you remember so-and-so? You went to high school with him? He's in jail. I'm like, oh, 
or, you know, so-and-so, that store closed. You know, it's like, what good can come from Nazareth? When Jesus was crucified, a sign hung above his head. It said two phrases. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was sarcasm. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Like, it's something, it's, it's so small. And this announcement that God is going to literally save the world through the Messiah takes place in the here and now. Think about this. We don't know a lot about Jesus sort of growing up. And like, even in the creeds and stuff, it was like born of the Virgin Mary. Then he died. It's like, hey, he had a life in there, right? And so we see Jesus at 12 years old there in the temple. Jesus spent a majority, listen to this, a majority of his life. He didn't start his ministry until about 30 years of age. A majority of his life in a town with less than 500 people. I mean, it's, Right? I mean, John Mellencamp wrote it for us in 1987. It's the theme song of Jesus. I was born in a small town, right? I got nothing against a big town. Still hayseed enough to say, hey, look who's in the big town, right? But my bed's in a small town. Do you know why that's so significant for us? The insignificance of this place? I've said it. You've said it. Oh, I can't wait to get out of here. Oh, once I'm in college and I'm, I am never coming. And then once we get the thing and then move there and then the. You see, we have a fairy tale that we don't think that we're idolizing, but we actually are. When my life is blank, then everything that God wants to do in my life, it will happen. And what's in that blank is your idol. And, and what God is showing us is, is well, it's this. What we think is insignificant, by the scripture standard, God always says is important. Always. So what situation in your life, your, your job, your, your family, the, the town that you live in, this, that, and the other, that you think, man, nothing is ever going to happen here. I've got to get out of this. I'm this, that. And we see that Jesus, the very Son of God, this announcement, the annunciation happens in an insignificant place. The second thing is this, is that we see the impossible with the inadequate. We've got some characters that are now given to us in the story. Verse 27, of Nazareth, and then to a virgin befalled to a man whose name was Joseph, or as my nephews used to say, Jophus, right? Jophus of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Joseph's a great character. Um, we, don't, we don't know a lot about this guy. We see him mentioned a few times in the scriptures. Um, actually, when Jesus is brought to the temple and, and Simeon, the prophet, sees and knows that this is the Messiah, when Simeon gives the prophecy and then speaks to Jesus' parents, he only speaks to Mary, almost as if like there's something that's going to happen to Joseph. He says to Mary, a sword will pierce your heart because you will see this child crucified. But nothing said of Joseph. And so a lot of scholars believe that Joseph was probably older He's a blue-collar guy. He's a carpenter, um, probably not with wood, but more so with stone. So he probably was, you know, kind of, you know, buffed up or something like that, okay? So he's just a blue-collar guy working 12 hours a day in a town of 500 or less people, grinding it out, man. And we see that almost, I thought this morning when I was reading this passage, Joseph 
gives his life, his reputation. We see later on in Matthew's gospel, um, well, it's right here in the text, that they're betrothed together, which is sort of a legal binding engagement, right? So we don't really know what that is now because dating in 2019 is like a landmine of bodies, okay? We don't like, it's atrocious, right? We have no idea. We have guys that are brave enough to shoot an animal with antlers on its head, but they can't talk to a woman in their face, so they slide in their DMs. It's like that kind of stuff, okay? Actually, back then, there was a process. It's crazy, right? Um, two families got together, and they talked about this. There was a covenant that was made. Um, they dated, right? And so dating actually changed a lot with the automobile because then, for the first time ever in sort of history, that you were able to go take a woman from a long distance from her family. Back then, the families actually um, sort of dated each other as well. So you knew if you were going to marry crazy or not because her mom's crazy, okay, right? It was a whole process, all right? But it was legally binding in that society. Now, remember, we're in a small town. We know what looks are like in a small town, right? Oh, y'all, y'all ain't never got the looks before in a small town, right? So, so this is a, there's a lot going on here. And then Joseph, it says, wanted to quietly break that off because he had legal grounds for that because, uh, you know, the girl you're engaged to is now pregnant. It's not yours, right? It's like a Jerry Springer show. This is crazy, all right? It's nuts. But what we see is that, that Joseph quietly doesn't do this. He, he obeys the word. And then I thought about this this morning. Joseph gives his life of taking on those looks, of raising this child, and he never got to see the resurrection. I just thought this morning, am I okay as a parent to make all the deposits and never see the benefits of raising my kids? Would I be okay with that? Or am I in this thing for an outcome? Am I in this thing to see results? Joseph's just quiet. I mean, this guy just grinds it out and obeys the Lord. And there's nothing about his abilities that are like, ooh, this is incredible, right? And and this is what we see from the life of Joseph. We see that God doesn't use us based on our abilities. I mean, God uses us based on our availability. Like, Joseph was available. Like, how difficult is that, right? Joseph was just present, and he was there, And now we see to a virgin whose name was Mary. I need to do a little bit of work here. And so I'll probably offend everyone in the room, which is great. All right. So if you grew up Roman Catholic, I'm going to press against you a little bit. And then if you grew up like Southern Baptist or General Baptist, I'm going to press up against you a little bit too. There's a ditch on either side of the road that we say here at Westside. And so a lot of times um, when it comes to Mary's case, there's been a... um, extra biblical teaching that's been added to her. Also, there's been another group of people on the either side of the road who remain ignorant and just bash people for that and have no knowledge of what the scriptures actually say. So I'm going to offend all of y'all today, all right? What we know about Mary is that she was young, like maybe as young as 12. Right? That doesn't really fit well with your manger scene, does it, right? Probably illiterate. Probably only the, the only scripture that she knew was what was read and spoken of in the temple. That's why when Gabriel gives all of these descriptions of the baby that is to come, you can almost draw a direct line to an Old Testament passage. So that was probably understood there. Um, very poor background. Poor, insignificant, inadequate, nothing incredible to offer. And then the angel comes and says, blessed are you. 
for you're highly favored. That's the same term that we see about Noah in Genesis. You know what it doesn't mean? Everybody teaches that wrong. Everybody in the world hated God, but Noah was perfect. So God chose Noah. Wrong. Wrong. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the grace that is given is not based upon the individual's performance. It's based upon God's goodness. God's goodness and kindness. And so one of the things that I want to do is I want to give a right view of this. Because listen to me, if you're a young lady in here or if you're a parent and, and you have daughters, oh my goodness, let Mary be, be this example. I love what Bishop J.C. Ryle says to sort of set us right. He says this, The Roman Catholic Church pays an honor to her hardly inferior to that which it pays to her blessed son. She is formally declared to be conceived without sin herself. She's held up as an object of worship and prayed to as a mediator between God and man, no less powerful than Christ himself. For all of this, may it be noted, there is not the slightest warrant in the scriptures. But, but, while we say this, we must in fairness admit that no woman has ever so highly been honored as the mother of our Lord. By the childbearing of this woman, life and immortality were brought to light when Christ was born. Think about this. This is incredible. And so, to, you know, it's not that she was sinless. We see later on in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 2 that she offers a sacrifice, her and Joseph, and it's two doves, which is the poor person's atonement for sin. Um, the perpetual virginity is actually an extremely new doctrine that didn't come around to the late 1800s. And we see that Jesus had some brothers and possibly sisters, James, who authors a book of the New Testament, Jude, who authors a book of the New Testament. Here's what I'm trying to say. Mary is not the object of our faith. She's an example of faith. And young ladies, let Mary be an example that you don't have to sacrifice who you are in Christ in order for the world around you to love you. Young ladies, please know your worth. There will be so many lies told to you, so many quick pleasures offered and given. And what we see in Mary is a young lady who, well, I just want to walk through some of these examples. Pastor Timothy Keller helped me with this. The first thing that we see is this, ladies. Mary's sobriety of thought. Look at what it says there in verse 29. It says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Uh, yeah, this is weird, okay? And here's what we do. We say, oh, well, that's the Bible. That's ancient times. They were kind of sort of used to that stuff and none of that. Like, we're, we have logic now. We have, we have Google. We have Google, YouTube, that type of stuff. So it's a lot harder for us to believe that stuff now than it was harder for Mary to believe that then. Wrong. You have to understand, Mary's theology, Mary was Jewish. Mary's theology did not allow her to believe that God would become a human being. I mean, that was a violation of a commandment, a graven image of God. So Mary also had an obstacle to understand what this was. But the word discern there means that literally she was sober in her thought process. So it's not this idea of either 
hey, I'm just going to turn my brain off and, quote, believe this. And it's also not this idea of I'm going to turn my brain off and not believe this. It's I'm going to use my mind that God has given me in order to discern this process. So we see her sobriety of thought. The second thing that we see is this, Mary's sincerity of heart. Look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Um, Because biology, you know, right? How will this be? Hey, um, maybe you didn't know this. Maybe this is news. Maybe it's not. Did you know? Did you know that you could be honest with God? It's pretty, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm dropping some serious knowledge here today, right? Um, Mary asks a sincere question. How will this be, right? And so oftentimes we think, and maybe you were raised with that doubt is bad. As soon as you doubt, oh, that's from the devil, right? What if I told you that doubt was actually the doorway to faith? Because what we see is, is that you have two options. Doubt desires to believe, Unbelief refuses to believe. Doesn't matter. So I don't care about the manuscript. I don't care about that. I don't care about that. I just, I, and if you're honest with yourself, you do not desire to believe, okay? You want to argue. But sincere doubt desires to believe. It just doesn't have the evidence yet for it. And so it's not this idea that I turn off my brain and I don't have to do this. What does Mary do? She brings it to God. It's the same thing that Jesus does to Thomas, doubting Thomas right? We give Thomas a bad rap. Are you kidding me? If I saw you hit by the swanch truck out here, and then somebody was like, yo, he's alive, man. He's right up there eating breakfast with everybody. I would be like, you're nuts, okay? (laughs) So why are we like separating ourselves from these people in the scriptures? We see that Thomas says, I'll believe it when I basically essentially see it. And Jesus invites Thomas's doubts. That's what God wants to happen. And then God also does something for the sincerity of the doubts. Look at what it says, drop down verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, she's also conceived a son in the sixth month with her who was called barren. What is that? That's evidence that God is also doing something in someone else's life. So anytime that we have doubts, you have two options. You can either remove yourself from the tension. You can go online or find a group of people that will affirm your lifestyle and do all this and who knit sweaters and love cats and do all that. I don't know if that happens, but I'm just saying everyone that's like you, okay, everybody's like me and my whole life is now like me and now we're all mad at the same thing and this, that, and the other. Or, or, or you can doubt your own doubts and you can challenge them and you can engage in a process And what God does is he says not not only to look at the word that's spoken, but look at what else God is doing in other people's lives. This is fun, and we do this from time to time. This will be great. I want you to raise your hand if you or someone directly related to you has prayed a specific prayer and had that prayer specifically answered by God. I want you to raise your hand right now. Raise your hand. Look around the room. Don't be alone. Don't be alone in the doubts. Gather yourself around the community of faith and know, man, if God did it in their life, God can do it in my life. For behold, nothing is impossible with God. For we see her sincerity of heart and then this, Mary's submission to the word. 
Oh my goodness, ladies, listen, if you're a young lady in this room, please let Luke chapter 1 verse 38 be your life verse. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Listen, can I be honest in here? I'm afraid to say that. God, my family, my family, let my wife and my three children be to you as it is your word. God, let this church, let this church be as whatever it will be as unto your word. Listen, here's one thing that we don't ever realize in Christianity is we think that when we say yes to Christ, we add Christ to our life. And the reality is, is that when you say yes to Christ, you say no to a thousand other things. And when Jesus talks about this, he says, in order to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily. It's this constant denial that we have to understand because we know that God's way is better. That's the only way that you can do that. The only way that, the only way that Mary could say this is that she had a trust to know that this God is good. That this God is good. And so I submit my life to it. But then the last thing is this, ladies. Mary's sacrifice of a reputation. You see what she said? Long before Paul McCartney ever wrote it. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me. To me. In a town of 500 people. When Mary began to show... You think when she went to Walmart grocery pickup, she got some looks? What about in the synagogue when she went to worship? Do you think a couple ladies would point at her and say, look, she thinks that she received the prophecy. It was a daily thing for her. It was constant. Everywhere she went, she had to renew that identity that so be it, so be it, amen. What God has said is good. Listen, what's happening in this story is literally an arc of the climax of the narrative of Scripture. This is a painting that, was, that became sort of viral a couple years ago. And it's called, O Eve. And it's from the standpoint of if Mary could speak to Eve. There's all types of symbolism in it. Eve's eyes are looking at Mary's belly, where her hand is, where the promised Savior is to be. Mary's eyes are looking at the fruit that Eve is holding that brought sin and rebellion into the world. But the baby in Mary's belly is the child of redemption. There's the serpent. There's all of this here. And that what God is saying through this annunciation is that everything that's ever been bad, everything that was bad that entered into the story, I'm rewriting this story. And the poem that goes along with the painting is this, O Eve, my mother, my daughter, Life-giving Eve, do not be ashamed and do not grieve. The former things have passed away and our God has brought us to a new day. You see, I am with child through whom will be all will be reconciled. O oh, Eve, my sister, my friend, we will rejoice together forever. Life without end. God's rewriting the story. And look who he's doing it with. Inadequate people. 
People who are not worthy of this honor. So listen, the whole application of this is this. Your excuses. Your excuses for why God can't use you. Or what's going on in your life, listen to me. Grace is more powerful than any sin that you could ever imagine. That God specializes in only using broken people. That's it. We see the impossible taking place in an insignificant place. We see God accomplishing the impossible through inadequate people. And then these next verses, it's, it's just the impossible with the infinite. It's the only thing I could think of. When we see the description of this baby, because the focus is not so much Mary as it is the descriptions of who this child is. For it starts with the behold, and behold, you will conceive in your womb. I was struck this week, and, and I have to say this. Um, We've been for two weeks in this story. And it's involved God doing something in the womb of a woman. You see, my conscience is held captive by the word of God, as Luther says. I hear I stand, I can do no other. And I know that that is a watershed issue now. And I lay two things before you. The first one is this, is that we cannot ignore that the God of the universe chose and ordained the womb of women for this to happen. You can't ignore that in the text. The second thing is this. However that hits you and affects you, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. For his riches and his kindness and his mercy... I'm bound by the text because that's what's happening. That there's going to be a baby in this womb conceived of the Holy Spirit. It's incredible. And we see the descriptions of this baby. And it's this, the first one. This baby is the Savior. I mean, it's what it says. And you shall call his name Jesus. Do you know what the angel didn't allow them to do? He didn't like, like let them, you know, hey, pick out a name. You know, right? It's popular these days. Like do a Facebook poll or something like that. What should we name? And then, you know, God forbid you go down the Kanye and Kim route, right? And start naming your babies directions or something like that, okay? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But what we see is that the angel says, the angel says, this is what you must name the baby. That's true for us today, the way that Jesus enters our life. You don't get to name Jesus. You don't add Jesus to your life. Jesus comes in as Lord and Savior. It's not this that Jesus is in addition to our life, but rather that he is the Savior. That's what the name means, Jesus, God saves. This is the Savior. The second one is this. This baby is to be great, right? I mean, this baby ends the LeBron-Michael Jordan discussion. It's over right here. Verse 32, for he shall be great. Now, why is that important? Nazareth. Poor, inadequate, illiterate family. And what's the backdrop that this is happening on? Behind the Roman government. Where we see Herod, we see Caesar, we see all of that. What's God telling us? The humility that is in this passage. For God 
the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who never had a beginning, very God from God and very light from light, to enter into human history is a humility that we do not understand. Greatness is measured by humility. That's it. You want great victory in your marriage? Humble yourself. You want great victory in your family? Humble yourself. You want great victory at your workplace? Humble yourself. That is the thrust, that this king is great. And then the second one is this, this baby is the only son of God. For he shall be the son of the most high. And then we drop down and see that in verse 35, holy, the son of God. When I first became a pastor, I was blown away at the understanding of people who had been in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and they thought Jesus began at Christmas. This is the eternal God. This is before time was, and God said, let there be light. This is the second member of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what got Jesus murdered. Nobody was mad that Jesus fed hungry people from a kid's Lunchable. Like, who's mad about that? Like, oh, that guy's blind. Now you can see. Crucify him. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Because before Abraham was, I am. And why is this so important? To be fully God and to be fully man. You see, to be fully God and to be fully man in order to fully bridge the gap between God and man. And listen, we, we get preached this all the time. Marvel, Avatar, they're preaching a gospel to you. That someone from outside needs to come in on the inside, but they need to be perfect. And Thor and this and that, they need to come in and they need to save us. That story has been borrowed from the greatest story. That is the story that this fully God, fully man, that Jesus did not lose any of his divinity, but rather added to it humanity. That this is the son of God. And then this, that this baby is king that he will sit on the throne of his father David. The lineage, the true and great king. And listen, I have to say this. What's coming in this next year every time you turn on the news, okay? Um, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you live in a monarchy, not a democratic republic. There's no votes to make Jesus Lord, right? He rose from the dead. He's Lord whether you cast the vote or not. So this coming year, if you find yourself fitting into the left side or the right side or whatever crazy side, and you're not getting it from both sides, I'm going to ask you if you're actually following Jesus. Because those of us who follow the king, listen, our allegiance is not to a donkey and to an elephant. Our allegiance is to a bloody slain lamb. That is where our allegiance lies. And in this culture, if that is not a watershed divide, then are we following this king whose kingdom, the last one is this, eternal? There will be no end. We just had the scripture read to you. Do not put your hope in princes. For when they die, their breath is gone. It is gone. But this hope of this king, it is eternal. I learned from my English teacher in high school, if you don't know how to end something, just quote somebody who said it really better than you. <laughs> my routine is, is that I write the sermon and then I go and I read 
Charles Spurgeon has had a huge impact on my life. And so I read his sermon and I go, oh my God, what am I doing? And he talked about the descriptions of this king that seemed just so impossible and infinite to us that we can never imagine. He said these words, have you ever stood in Westminster Abbey? When I read that, I thought, no, I have not, right? (laughs) Have you ever stood in Westminster Abbey when some great warrior was being buried and when the herald pronounced his various titles, he has been greatly honored by his queen and by his nation for which he has fought so valiantly. And this, he's the prince of this, or he was the duke of that, or he was the count of the other, or the earl of something. All of these magnificent and brilliant titles. What a parade it is. But what I say to it is vanities, all vanities. It's all vanities. What use is it in the senseless clay that is buried with the pomp of heraldry? But I stand, I stand at the tomb of Christ, and I say of his offices that they are supremely grand, and moreover that they are not buried, and neither is this king buried, for he lives and he still bears all of the honors that are described in this text, still in the fullness of all of their splendor. He, it is still all of the people, and he shall deliver up this office as he carries it on and he will carry it on and he shall deliver it up unto the kingdom of God unto the father and God shall be all in all oh what the splendor of this Christ this son of God in among 10,000 men who is like this God in all of eternity and the government shall be upon his shoulders and he shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. And we say, Hosanna to the son of God. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord and let our hearts give him our adoring praise this evening for this king and this baby. He is great and he is glorious in the offices in which God has heaped upon him. You see, tonight, this is our God. This is our God. And if this is our God with these type of credentials, then it tells me that nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. So in closing this, I have a couple questions. The first one is this, that what insignificant situation are you overlooking in your life? Oh, this job, oh, this town, all of it. It's just, once I get there, listen to me, whatever you think is insignificant in your life, that is the very place that God has promised to work, not in your strengths, but in our weaknesses. The second one is this, do you think that you're so inadequate that God can't use you? Have you read the Bible? The only people that God uses because it's the only people that God has are broken people. And he takes broken pieces and he makes masterpieces out of them. The last thing is this. Are you trying to consult with the king? I think there's times where we come to Jesus and we almost ask for advice. (laughs) Asking for advice from someone who rose from the dead and said, hey, I just need a little insight and a little bit of advice here. Listen, we don't consult with this king. We submit and we surrender to this king. So Westside, stand to your feet as this passage is so mysterious. 
And as we have proclaimed all through the Advent season, what we're calling the mystery of faith, that it's too good for us to even realize. So lift up your voices and repeat the bold words on the screen after me. Therefore, let us proclaim the mysteries of this faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And let us pray how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we're asking you to do the impossible. <laughs> so many of us in this room, myself included, have situations that we, we say, for nothing is impossible with God. But there's a measure of doubt in our heart and in our mind. God, what I ask today is I ask that we would bring you those doubts, that those doubts would be a doorway into the impossible. For you tell us in Isaiah that, that a bruised and weak reed you will not break and a smoldering cold you will not put out. It doesn't matter about the amount of faith that we have when we come to you. It's about the object of our faith and our object of our faith is Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God, I pray for impossible situations. I pray for you to intervene in them and do what only you can do. We pray this all in the holy and in the risen name of Jesus Christ.